The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. This podcast began with both Pete and I, two kindred souls with a passion for moving the recovery process forward. If you've started listening more recently, say since the beginning of 2022, you likely noticed that Pete is absent from conversations. This is because he had a rather unexpected and abrupt departure from this earthly plane. Pete's voice remains in the intro in reverence to and respect for his part of our joint vision for this project. Simply put, it wouldn't be where it is today, nor have a future without him. Now, on to another great conversation. also important to ask clients what they want to be able to do. So one of my field work rotations, I didn't work with stroke patients necessarily, but I worked with a geriatric population and I asked about medication management and some of them didn't care to do it because they had caregivers come in and do it for them. They could physically take the medications, but they did not care to learn how to set up their pill planner or how to refill prescriptions. So I think it's important too to see what they actually value doing within medication management and then starting from there and not assuming that they just want to be as independent as possible. In this episode of Noggins and Neurons, I talk with Duville University OT students, Anna Kotansky and Haley Bjorkman and their professor, Tracy Bentley-Rue. It's a great conversation about managing medications after stroke. In fact, it's so good we had to break it up into two parts. In this part one, we focus more on common challenges that people experience and then move into solutions in part two. I hope you find as much value in this conversation as I do. Tracy Bentley Root joins me as co-host. She is an occupational therapist with over 25 years of clinical experience working in a variety of direct care and management positions serving adults across the continuum of care. 
She is clinical assistant professor at Duville and fieldwork educator to OT students in her acute care position. Tracy is currently a doctor of health science degree candidate at the University of Indianapolis. And now Anna and Haley introduce themselves. Hello, my name is Anna Kotansky. I was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio, and I attend Duval University located in Buffalo, New York. I will be graduating with my Bachelor's of Science in Human Occupation and Master's of Science in Occupational Therapy this coming May 2022. A few things about me is I completed my level two fieldwork in a pediatric outpatient clinic and an outpatient hand clinic. Currently, I am working on my critically appraised topic, which my research is, what is the effectiveness of assistive technology devices for improving quality of life for people affected by amyotrophic lateral sclerosis and their caregivers. After graduation, I plan to move back to Cleveland, Ohio, and hopefully get a job within one of the many hospital systems in the acute care setting. Feel free to follow me on LinkedIn at Anna Kotansky, and my email will be in the show notes below. Hi, my name's Haley Bjorkman, and I'm an occupational therapy student at DUville College in Buffalo, New York. I was born and raised as a very proud Army brat, so I don't really have a hometown. I moved around a lot. I completed my level two fieldworks in a pediatric outpatient clinic and an independent living facility in North Carolina. My critically appraised topic for my senior research project was what is the effectiveness of cognitive behavioral therapy on improving quality of life for individuals diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And after graduation, I am moving to Great Falls, Montana with my partner. Welcome, Anna Kotansky. Hi, thank you for having us. And welcome, Haley Bjorkman. Hi, how are you? Two students from Duval College and their professor, Tracy Bentley Root. How is everyone? Good, good. Excited for this conversation. Well, I'm very excited for this. I did my pre-gaming. This is kind of a topic that's near and dear to my heart, so I'm very excited. Man, that's a lot of pressure, Tracy. Oh, Haley, come now. <laughs> no, 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 no. Today, we're going to talk about medication management as it relates to stroke recovery. I have a strong suspicion that we're going to talk about the caregivers, how I don't want to say too much here, but I feel like we're going to talk about stress on caregivers, maybe some strategies to help reduce stress all around, not just caregivers, um, the survivors and everything around how occupational therapy can help with medication management. And I'm sure we're going to learn some interesting facts today. Yeah, I know when Haley and I started our research, we didn't really know what like realm to go down because medication management is just such a huge topic. And our research kind of took us down more to like the um, stresses that can bring caregivers, stresses on the patient, the importance of motivating the patient. And then Haley found 
millions and millions of assistive technology uh, devices for medication management. So we kind of went down those roads when it came to this topic. So where should we start? Do you want to start with what you found to be the most interesting? Do you want to start with definitions? I think it would be good to start with definitions, just kind of defining everything. Okay. That sounds good to me. So according to all of our research, uh, medication management is every, is all the components for taking the medication. That is when you're first prescribed it, how you are going to get it, how you're going to order it, when you are taking it, how you are storing it and maintaining the medication as you go through your prescription. So there's uh, many levels and steps to that, as I just explained. And then medication adherence, which is also a term that we will more than likely will be using throughout this podcast. It's when a person follows the prescription directions and takes their medications according to the physician's recommendation. So when you adhere to your medication routine, you're taking all the medications at the time they need to be taken, multiple times throughout the day, uh, things like that. And we're discussing medication management for stroke because it's such a difficult aspect. I feel like a lot of people forget about because often you're discharged from the hospital after a stroke and you're handed this really complex medication regime that includes how to obtain your prescriptions, organizing your medications, how to safely store them. Now you have to make yourself a schedule. You need to be able to resolve your problems independently. And it just causes a lot of stress for both the patient and the caregiver. And we should really, we really need to focus on how to help them overcome that. I agree. It's a, it's a big topic. It's a big thing that people need to do in their lives in the middle of a life altering event. And that's why I think a lot of the responsibility and pressure goes on to the caregiver because they are the ones who are kind of coherent throughout the whole thing, writing notes down because the patient just had a stroke. I mean, they're resting and now it's the responsibility of the caregiver to write down all the medicines, when to take them, how to administer them if they have to be administered via injection or liquid or pill. So it's just a lot of added components on top of already grieving with the stroke and then taking care of them to begin with. Oftentimes there's many additional medications after someone suffers an event where polypharmacy becomes a huge issue as well. So you guys were speaking to ordering it and coordinating it and then frequencies and times of day. And then there's all the options that are available for individuals, such as commingling medicines. And then those, when they're on a blood thinner that they have to be monitored. There's just many, many different aspects that could definitely be from what Anna and Haley you're saying that overwhelming to someone that normally would have been able to manage such an event, but now things have happened and their roles, their own roles have changed. Maybe they weren't the, the manager of the medicines before their loved one had their stroke. So that kind of leads into what exactly OT can do for medication management. It's within our scope of practice. So according to AOTA, the American Occupational Therapy Association, we have OT being we, has a distinct contribution to medication management as we address the actual performance, 
the context in which they're doing it or when they're taking the medicine, analyzing, assessing, and addressing the client's performance and helping them build that routine and uh, fit it within their lifestyle and their context. One of the articles that you sent us to read was Occupational Therapy's Role in Medication Management. This is a gem. Oh, it's beautiful. It is. It was in, I don't see the year that this was in. Isn't it our position paper? Is it a position paper? I think so. It, this is an article from AJOT. Hmm. Oh, it's, um, it's the 2017 one, the one I just read the definition. It was in the November, December, volume 71. Okay. So this article, it, it goes through the whole process of occupational therapy as it relates to medication management. So looking at evaluation and intervention and then supporting evidence. And I feel like there are so many places we could go with this, but I know maybe before we, well, I don't know, you decide how we want to do this, but we can do it kind of backwards. But when I was reading the, some of the other articles that you sent about the problems that people face with medication management, I found the one with the, the nurses and the ethnographic study. Where did that one go? Um, yeah, the visiting nurses post-hospital medication management in home health care, an ethnographic study. And that was out of Denmark, correct? Yes. And I, I, it seems to me that a lot of what the nurses were doing, occupational therapy practitioners could do, but I think it's fascinating some of the information that they found when they went into people's homes. So do we want to talk about the struggles that people have that maybe they don't even know that they're having? Yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed this article, the visiting nurses one, because mm -hmm. it, it gave an insight on what it's actually like to have to manage all of these medications. I think home healthcare is a almost underrated in the sense of how much it's needed, why it's needed, and how much of a relief it can be on the family. So it was interesting to read this article because the problem that the nurses saw a lot, because I think Tracy, you had uh, just mentioned this, when they're discharged from, when patients are discharged from the hospital, they are visited or explained their medication management by the um, pharmacist. However, there seems to be a theme in which the phar pharmacist will then just prescribe other medications without explaining exactly what they are and why they're prescribing. It could be an extra pain pillar. It could be, I mean, who knows what, but the patient and their family still don't know. So in this article, the nurses explained how families either just wouldn't take it or would take it and not really know what it does or take it at the wrong time. So that was one barrier that um, the nurses were able to uh, address. Another was storage and how some of the medicines, they have to be refrigerated or they have to be, it depends on where they have to be. And many of the families did not know that, or they, they didn't know that medication expires 
or there's just so many that they didn't know that this is an only nighttime medication versus a daytime medication. So the nurses created those roles and routines and habits for, I believe it was the first four weeks post hospital, they came every day and helped administer to help organize it. And studies show that that tremendously helped patients and caregivers and improve their quality of life and improve their, um, their health overall. Maybe because they were adhering to the medications, taking those medications. And one of the things that I remember reading in that article too, is the nurses also were able to identify expired medications. And also if there were going to be any interactions among medications, which I think is another problem with prescriptions with the pharmacy from the hospital prescribing medications without knowing maybe what people were taking prior to their hospitalization. And I know that we often say, carry a list of your medications in your wallet with you so that health providers can know so that you can answer that question. But how many people really do carry a list? of their medications or think that they would even need to carry that list. It's interesting that you say that because when someone is admitted into home care, med reconciliation is part of that first visit. And then every professional that goes out to that home is then also responsible for making sure that there haven't been any changes to the medications that have been prescribed to that individual. I can tell you that sometimes I was the third professional in the home and there are times when I still found they were taking some homeopathic medicine that they never shared with anybody else. So there's just always people don't understand the effects of non-prescription on prescriptions. So that's always something. So when I was working with individuals, I started to ask, are you taking anything else? And I would name common herbs and things such as that. And all of a sudden out came this other box full of things that they were either brewing or having with. And that was all information that needed to be shared with the doctor to make sure that everyone was aware that there weren't any sort of dangerous combinations. Well, that's interesting that you say shared with the doctor because now I think that people have multiple physicians, different specialists, a general practitioner, maybe a cardiologist, maybe a, a neurologist, maybe several, several different pharmacies. So med reconciliation really is, it's an all hands on deck kind of activity, medication management. There is an opportunity and a role for all practitioners involved. When you're talking about home care, I know obviously that we're all occupational therapists or future occupational therapists on this call. But we have to understand that it's also our nurses involved with us. It's also the pharmacist with us. It's any of the other rehabilitation specialists that are involved when you're talking about home care, making sure that those individuals have the best tools based on the level of ability and the needs that each individual client represents and that caregiver. So I'm hoping that that's something that we can get to on this call as well talking about what is available from a very low tech option and then to more some of the, the higher tech, because I mean, there's definitely quite a bit out there from an automated perspective, but that also has its challenges, which goes back to what Anna was saying in the article where 
caregivers are actually, they don't have any sort of increased quality of life because the assistive technology, we were talking about it, it's something else, but I'm thinking that assistive technology may also be burdensome to individuals when they maybe they aren't from a health literacy perspective capable or they have the ability to manage some of those recommendations that we're making all well and good and those recommendations would work but they may not meet the needs of what our clients and their caregivers are really looking for or are willing to utilize you bring up a really good point here and one of the things that we talk about a lot in our OT treatments is patient and caregiver education. Something that came up in one of these articles was educating people to the, to the point where they are competent, like where they achieve mastery of something. And I wonder in our system here in the United States, if with the the way that we rush people through and push people through and have these outrageous productivity requirements. If we, if we spend the time with people so that they can develop that level of mastery and competency in administering medications or taking their own or using technology. Had an article actually about doctors making videos for their patients, describing and showing them all the medications and when to take it and how to, how to take it. And studies show that that little personal touch motivated both the patient and the caregiver just enough to really sit down and understand and learn, and then adhere to their whole medication routine. Now that is well within OT scope of practice. And I just wonder if that additional 15 minutes on either the doctor or the, OT or the OT's part would make much of like a difference with uh, medication adherence. And meeting the person where they're at or the caregivers where they're at. So really coming down to the health literacy and what is it? Because I don't necessarily know that if, if my elderly parents would watch a video, to be honest with you. I mean, I'm thinking that they may do better with uh, written multiple pieces of paper that my mother, let's be honest, would be then monitoring and doing it herself because she is the primary caregiver. When I think about this from what we learn in OT school, teaching and learning concepts and the tell, show, do approach, I think there's great value in that. And I know when I'm in the clinic and I'm teaching someone something if I tell them ahead of time what we are going to do together and then that I'm going to show them and then they're going to have the opportunity to practice when they're with me, it seems to um, take a little, like they seem to be relieved that they're going to have the opportunity to practice with feedback. And I think a lot of it has to do with approach and the time that people feel like they have with you. And so I do wonder if, if we ask people, how would you like to learn about this? If we tell people, I have, I have some strategies, this is what I have, where do you want to start? Maybe give them a choice because maybe they would be more open to strategies that we think they wouldn't be open to if they didn't feel like they had to pretend like they know. 
what to do. Or if they had to do what we suggested. People always do better when they come up with their own solution. I definitely agree. Just from my fieldwork experience, medication management was almost forgotten about. It was a question you had to ask. What are the medications that you're that you are taking? Are you having any side effects? That was all I was required in my settings to ask. But to recognize as occupational therapists that we do have a large role in medication management, taking that step and saying, do you have any questions about your medic medication management or what is your routine so that we can evaluate, sit back and understand if they are well-educated, if they are adhering uh, to their management as well. I think it's also important to ask clients what they want to be able to do. So one of my field work rotations, I didn't work with stroke patients necessarily, but I worked with a geriatric population and I asked about medication management and some of them didn't care to do it because they had caregivers come in and do it for them. They could physically take the medications, but they did not care to learn how to set up their pill planner or how to refill prescriptions. So I think it's important too to see what they actually value doing within medication management and then starting from there and not assuming that they just want to be as independent as possible. Kaylee, that goes with the conversation that we had previously about this podcast is the importance of motivating the patient, explaining like why these medications are important or how can we make this process easier for you? I know you and I talked about that at great length. That really speaks to uh, disease management, chronic health management, obviously in one of our IADLs. So I would love to hear more as to what Debbie was saying. Oh, I wanted to talk more about the whole motivating the patient or motivating the person, because I wonder if kind of going back to what Haley, you were saying about asking them. And then tying this into Tracy, what you were saying, meeting them where they are. So we meet them where they are. We find out really what they want to be able to do and then talk to them about medication management and find out what their thoughts and beliefs are around medication because beliefs seem to come up a lot in the literature around medication adherence. So could we talk a little bit more about this whole motivation thing? I feel like it's important for occupational therapists to motivate clients through education and think, get the clients to think more long-term rather than short-term. So not just thinking, yes, taking this medication may reduce your cholesterol, but like realize the impacts it may have long-term. It's going to, at the end of the day, reduce your risk for recurrent stroke. And I feel like sometimes clients have a very short-term mindset, like I'm okay, I'm not worried about my cholesterol, but they need to be looking long-term. So I think educating them on all the possibilities, both good and bad, and adhering to medications can motivate them as well. Do you think people don't adhere to their medications on purpose? I don't think it's on purpose, but more of a lack of understanding of the impact of adhering to medications. Or going back to what Anna said earlier, just not knowing what they're for. 
I don't want to take this medication because at the end of the day, I don't know what it's doing. I don't know what it's going to do to me long term. So I'm just not going to take it. How bad can it be? I sometimes wonder if it's even that much. So my dad was in the hospital this past winter. And when the home care people went over to his house, none of the prescriptions that he was given were filled. You know, it really didn't bother him at all. There might be a little lack of insight going on there. You know, his priorities are different. And he just kind of does his day. He's not like going through life thinking, well, I'm just not going to take these medications. And I just, I wonder how many other people don't place a value on it because they never have taken medications. Or if maybe they're just so busy in their day trying to get up and get washed and dressed and get a meal, especially after having a stroke. I just, I wonder sometimes about life getting in the way. Yeah, that's interesting because when you think about uh, medication management, it's really multifactorial. I mean, so it's, it gets to socioeconomic concerns. It gets to therapy specific factors. So like somebody who doesn't want to take their water pill, that's usually, that's an example that I often heard. Any patient specific related, and that's more of the intentional non-adherence. It also talks about conditions of the diagnoses that they have that may make adhering to their medications difficult. When you speak about non-adherence, it is the intentional, they do not take it, they do not choose to take it, and then it's the unintentional, which I have a tendency to think that, that and I don't have statistics on this, but the unintentional is those errors that establishing routines and habits could address. So unintentional is more the forgetful, careless. They, as Haley was saying, they don't understand what's going on. So they're just not going to take it because they were fine before. So why would I need it now? I feel fine. So, I mean, there's definitely, there's not just one. And I think it's really good to spend the time and drill down what is causing the non-adherence. And is it something that is out of the individual's control? So is it something that, that in the case of you were sharing with, with your father or any family member that they just didn't have somebody to pick it up? Or maybe there was a financial concern. And there's just, there's so many things. Or that, as we said before, there's multiple pharmacies involved. And, you know, I can, or the thing that really bothers me is that it's the same pharmacy, but there's four different due dates for their medications. One runs out on the 10th, one runs out on the 20th. I mean, they can only get one person to go to the pharmacy a month. So that's our role in coordination and working with the pharmacy to identify, you know, what can be done. And that's really knowing from a health management perspective and really knowing where you are providing your care, because you really have to be exceptionally literate in what is available in the community that you are working in. Because just what we would have in a more suburban area does not exist in a rural area. So that's something 
it, we just, it's very difficult. You can't paint it with that broad stroke because there's, and I mean, stroke of the brush. Um, it's just, it's, it's difficult to really, um, there's no one answer. So it's better to have a real strong understanding of our scope of practice and then making those referrals and working with our colleagues in other professions to make sure that ultimately that that individual can remain in the environment that they're choosing to be in, whatever environment it is, whatever they're identifying as their home. Because really when you think about it, chronic disease management and medication management is intimately involved in that. It's making sure that that individual can do what is required for them to remain safe and manage what conditions they have. Tracy, I want to take this one step further. Um, I saw in the literature, another way, reason why they're not adherent is their mental health. A lot of patients become anxious and depressed and don't even know where to begin or don't even think they want to begin. And their families become anxious and depressed and it piles up because they have a million and one other things to do, like get the house ready, the bills, transportation, that mm -hmm. medication is just kind of on the back burner. And with our roots in uh, mental health and occupational therapies root in mental health, I think that is also a very important question to ask when dealing with medication management is how are you? Do you have any anxious tendencies? Things like that. And that has to go with coping with their stroke, both family and patient. Mm -hmm. Or asking them how they feel about managing their loved one's medications. Because that's another whole side of when you're thinking about healthcare and home health, you have to have those caregivers that are competent in order to do that. That's one of the topics that came up in these articles about it's called stressors and resources related to medication management associations with spousal caregivers role overload. So if you have a caregiver who doesn't feel competent, who doesn't feel confident, who feels overwhelmed, and you know, a lot of being overwhelmed and feeling overloaded with life tasks can have more to do with self-perception than actual amount of tasks. And I think that that's one thing that occupational therapy practitioners can understand and help people navigate. But I found this article very interesting. And many, so they only looked at spouses. They didn't consider people who cohabitate. Is that the right way to say that? Who, who cohabit? People who live together. And they didn't consider many of the different ways that people live. And they acknowledge that in the article though. But if people had lower levels of education, there was more stress involved. And when injections needed to be given, there was more stress involved. And I think that it's really important to acknowledge that stress around giving injection demonstrates a level of insight because more can go wrong when you're giving an injection. And so even if somebody doesn't have the level of education to understand everything behind that injection, knowing that they don't want their loved one to experience more harm 
and that they don't want to cause that harm. I think that's important to acknowledge in people. The one thing I found very interesting about this article was the term role overload, which technically is different from caregiver burden because overload is more distinct than looked at like how much they have to do, how much they have to handle and do they have the adequate time for it? So I just enjoyed learning that term because it definitely spans questions for caregivers. But with injections, my grandfather was the primary caregiver for my grandma. He had to do injections and no one showed him how. No, just they said, do it in her arm or do it in her leg. And the one thing that made him so hesitant was hurting her in the sense of the injection. And I think like telling patients and really stressing that that pinch is a minor consequence if not for this medication type thing. It's, it's, my, it's a minor thing for the long-term effects this medication has. So really, I think spending the time with the caregiver answering all their questions is the most important way to handle medication management. Makes me often think that um, one other point or many points that were made in that article, but one of them was talking about how if their care recipient had five or more chronic health conditions, I mean, five or more, let's be honest, is not that many. So I would imagine many of the caregivers are giving care to someone who does have that many or more. And with each of that means different requirements for medications and managing what's going on. So it's really, it, I almost tend to think that time spent with people should be specifically what that client needs with, with some guidance based on how many chronic conditions they have, things such as that. I know reimbursement obviously takes that into account, but I wonder if that's really occurring in the day-to-day -day with individuals. Well, I wonder about that too, especially when there are, are multiple different therapist or provider mindsets. So I'm the kind of person that wants to spend as much time with my client that they need. I know that that's providing good therapy. That's me doing what I'm supposed to do and what I went to school to do and what I want to do. But there are those providers who are very much interested in managing their schedules in such a way where they just hurry up and get all of their visits done. And I don't know if it's just an indoctrination from the system or I don't know what's behind that. And that's not really for me to know, but I get concerned about people getting the training that they need. So I, I think about your grandpa. What if somebody would have sat with him, showed him how to do it, explained why they were doing that, and then let him try? I mean, isn't that what they do in nursing school? Well, it's funny that you bring that up. Because, and I, and I've always said it, and I will always say it, people who have, and it's unfortunate that this, that it is this way, but people who have family members within the healthcare system, even just smallest role, just enough to have a background or an informa like information are better off than people who don't, because 
my aunt is a, is a nurse practitioner. She was able to sit down and teach him everything. Now, if he didn't have that, who knows the health of my grandmother? But it, it just goes to show that like 10 minutes of just extra explanation really, I mean, can save someone's health, can help, can help someone. Can. And then the other thing that I wanted to, to bring up is how quickly people seem to be discharged from hospitals or from rehab right now with the assumption that if there is a person who lives in their same place of residence can be the caregiver. And if it's a younger person and they do live with a spouse or a partner, oftentimes that person's working during the day. So there are so many pieces and parts left hanging now that I would like to suggest are an opportunity for occupational therapy practitioners to fill in those gaps. And maybe it's not necessarily through a home health agency. Maybe it's through a different type of private practice. And I know that a lot of people don't want to be in private practice, but I wonder uh, how much better we could serve people if we were willing to take that risk. From a continuity of care perspective of decrease in hospitalizations, taking that time with individuals to set those routines and habits. The original article that we, we were speaking about in Denmark, they were saying it was four weeks and there was improvement. That's really not that long of time. But it was an everyday visit. That right there. Which isn't our current model. Right. It's interesting that you bring up models because in the A Million and One projects that Haley and I have this semester, one that I am doing research on is about models and changing um, the medical model to a more quality of care versus quantity of care and really looking at not so much the minutes I spent with you, but the information that I, that I told you, that I educated you on, that you now know. And I wish, I wish medical models change quickly, but obviously as we've seen through history, it doesn't. And I think we will always stay at, with that um, quantity medical model, but almost looking at medication management in a holistic quality of care type model versus I have to get this many units and this many minutes with that patient. That sounds amazing. Thanks. From a preventative and wellness perspective, I definitely appreciate your passion speaking to that value-based that's coming out, PDGM, PDPM. The intent is there to be a value-based system. I think it's too early to really see what is occurring based on the reimbursement model that is now present in post-acute care. PPS did that more money, more visits, more money, more visits. Then we obviously made the switch to value-based and PDGM, PDPM, but we did obviously immediately almost at the same time rush into a pandemic and how that affected things. So really, I think that we are behind on really 
seeing the true benefits as proposed with PDGM and PDPM, because we're, we're obviously recovering from the effects of what the pandemic did to healthcare. So now I think that we need to just kind of define PPS, PDPM, PD, P, D, <laughs> PPS, pay for performance. I have to look up PDGM, PDPM, so I make sure I say it the correct way. Thank you. You're very welcome. It flies off my tongue, but I don't remember. I think it's important that you brought up the pandemic too, because that certainly is playing a big role in what's happening right now. Patient-driven groupings model, that's PDGM. Patient-driven payment model is PDPM. PDPM is what they follow in nursing homes, skilled nursing facilities. And PDGM is what guides healthcare reimbursement. So post-acute care, obviously stepping down from there. So administrative changes that it came down for Medicare reimbursement. PPS came in 1997 with the Balanced Budget Act. And then PDGM, patient-driven groupings and patient-driven payment came in 2019, right before pandemic their payment models. And what they have done with PDGM and PDPM is that therapies are no longer driving reimbursement. So to go back to what Anna was saying, where more minutes and all of that, it should be more value, quality over quantity, not moving people up a reimbursement level based on the minutes someone's being provided services in the skilled nursing, so the acute settings and the number of actual visits occurring in home care. So they left the buckets where you were billed a certain, you were provided a certain reimbursement based on how many therapy visits were there. That's a little bit of a sidebar. Thank you for helping us understand that. Sometimes I think people don't want to talk about the reimbursement and the money, but it's not a bad thing. Mm-mm. You know, I mean, it's the way that our economy works. We pay for services with money. If anything, it more supports our role for things with medication management because we are reducing hospitalizations by facilitating adherence. So what is it that we could do as clinicians? Like what would be an action that if somebody was working with someone in skill nursing tomorrow with the, in rehab, subacute rehab, with the intent of that person leaving, what is something that they could do with that person under their care and rehab for medication management? Do you want us to answer that question? Because I know Haley has the answers. I do. This wraps up part one of our conversation. Stay tuned for part two. Refer to the show notes for relevant links related to the episode, as well as donation links, information on the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, Pete's book and blog, and other great information that we are happy to share with you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, 
the word and spelled out neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.